0: So tonight we're going to kick off a two-part mini-sermon series, where we're going to be looking at First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And we're looking at this section of God's Word together because we're going to be thinking about some of the key hallmarks of a faithful gospel ministry. Now, I was inspired to, to give attention and thought to this theme this week, because I knew that Today was the last time I'd hear Harrison preach, at least as a minister here at London City Presbyterian Church. One of the things we've got great cause for Thanksgiving is that Harrison has exercised among us a faithful gospel ministry. And as we look to the future, both for him and for us, it ought to be our prayer that we would continue whether it's here in London or there in Detroit, Michigan, be exercising a ministry that pleases God. Now, this is a great passage for us to turn our attention to because if there's any church in the New Testament that really functions as a model church, it would be the church that was in Thessalonica. If you've got your Bible there, glance back to Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. There Paul tells these this young fledgling church plant that they have become an example to all the believers throughout Macedonia and Achaia. And for two reasons they'd become a model church. Because the word of the Lord sounded forth from them and because their faith had been had gone forth everywhere. And brothers and sisters, we can learn from this church about what it means to be a church that is committed to furthering and advancing the gospel here in London and beyond and in Detroit and beyond. And it really is my prayer that that this passage would help inform and shape our vision as a church. Now, just before we dive in and look at the contents of chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, let me just give you a brief background to the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Now, I don't know if you remember, the story is told in Acts, from Acts chapter 15 through Acts chapter 18, of Paul's second missionary journey. And Paul had just, in many ways, parted company with Barnabas, and Paul had, alongside him, Silas and Timothy. And God gave him the, 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 that Macedonian call, that vision, to come and help the work of the gospel in the region of Macedonia. Paul obeyed, and Paul and Silas began ministering on what is today the modern continent of Europe. And and. and In Acts chapter 16, we're told the story of how the of the first European convert, Lydia, the fashion designer, the the seller in a purple cloth, and then the Philippian jailer, and then the young demon-possessed slave girl. And as Acts chapter 16 closes, it's of how Paul and Silas ended up being beaten, arrested, and then the earthquake from the prison, and then literally running from. Philippi and they ran from Philippi to Thessalonica. I keep saying Thessalonica or Thessalonica. I don't know which one it is. (laughs) Um, They ran and they arrived in Thessalonica and there we're told that they spent three consecutive Sabbaths Reasoning in the synagogue, as was their custom, trying to prove to them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now in Acts chapter 17 verse 4, this is what we're told. Some of them were persuaded. And so joined Paul and Silas. As did a great many of devout Greeks. And not a few of the leading women, which is a way of saying loads of the leading women of the city joined this church. So, so if you want to picture this church, it was made up of Jews and Greeks and loads of women. Loads of women of status significant. significance. But then we're told in verse 5, some of the Jews in that city grew jealous. In fact, they got so upset that they incited a number of people to start a riot. And these rebel rousers ended up forcing Paul and Silas to leave the city in the dead of night. So, so that's how the church was born. The church in Thessalonica. But as we read through 1 Thessalonians, not only did this, this group of jealous Jews, forced Paul and Silas and Timothy to leave the city but they launched a smear campaign against them See, if you glance at chapter 1 chapters 1 through verse uh, chapter 1 verses 3 through 10 Paul is convincing these young Christians that they are genuine Christians just just look at verse 4 or verse 3 remember Remembering before you are God and our Father, your work of faith, your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Verse, halfway through verse nine, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. It seems that these jealous Jews were, were, were accusing or, or saying to the young Thessalonian Christians, you're not true Christians. They were false messengers with a false message, and you've had a false conversion. Paul writes and says, no, 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 no. You're genuine Christians. But then in chapter 2, we can deduce from the defense that Paul makes that they, their smear campaign included them saying to the young Thessalonian Christians... Paul, Silas, and Timothy were nothing but charlatans, imposters, sham preachers who who came to use you and abuse you for their own ends. And so in chapters 2 and 3, Paul makes this defense of his gospel ministry. And it's from this context that we get some of the marks of a faithful gospel ministry now with that said by way of introduction let's let's just walk our way through verses 1 through 6 we're going to look at two marks of a faithful gospel ministry tonight now we're not told explicitly in the opening section of chapter 2 that what the accusations of the jealous Jews were but we can work out by inference that they were saying something like you know Paul and Silas when the going got tough they got going they didn't care for you. They didn't love you. Their coming among you was totally and utterless and vain. It was purposeless. Here's a question for you. How would you defend yourself against such accusations? Well, notice what Paul immediately does. Look at verse two, chapter two, verse one. For you yourselves know. Then look halfway through verse two. As you know. Paul's going to repeat this phrase again and again. And what he's saying to these young Thessalonian Christians is this. We, When we were among you, we lived lives like an open book. And the reason you need to trust that we were genuine ministers of the gospel, you don't need to buy these lies of the jealous Jews that we were false messengers, is because you guys, from personal experience, know knew what we were like. These men were willing to remain faithful to God and his gospel, no matter the opposition that they faced. That's hallmark number one. A willingness to remain faithful to God and his gospel, no matter the opposition. You know know what's fascinating is that when anyone starts a smear campaign, one of the tactics is this. Tell lies and gossip that include a little bit of the truth, but distort it. Subtly twist the facts. So Paul and Silas, they were only in Thessalonica for three consecutive Sabbaths and then they were run out of town. And so here's the thing. These guys didn't care for you. As 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 soon as there was trouble, they were off. And it's like Paul says in his opening verses, guys, you know that's not the truth. You know that's not the reality. Now, how would they know that's not the truth? Well, look at what he says in verse 2. Because we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. Paul and his companions remind these Thessalonian Christians that when the going got tough, they kept going on with gospel ministry so so, so in Philippi and, and by the way it's just worth reminding ourselves what happened in Philippi Paul and his uh, companion Silas they preached the gospel Lydia saved the Philippine jailer got saved and then there's this young slave girl who's demon-possessed and our owners make money through her and Paul, and she gets saved and the owners are furious. And so they seize Paul and Silas and they drag them into the mar- marketplace before the magistrates. And when they're before the magistrates, they say, these men are disturbing the peace of our city. And so, Paul and Silas are stripped naked. Now, 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 just think of the public humiliation. And then they're beaten with rods. And then they are unjustly thrown into prison. There was no fair trial, and Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And they find themselves spending a night in prison with their feet fastened in stocks. Do you remember what they were doing in prison? Singing hymns. Praising God. And then there's the marvellous earthquake. Now, Paul reminds these young Thessalonian Christians of that event and he says to them, as you know. And here's the question, how did they know? They weren't in Philippi. Well, no doubt they knew because Paul and Silas came limping and hobbling from Philippi into Thessalonica. They bore in their body the marks of the suffering they had just received. And, and you know what they did instantly? They made their way to the synagogue and they, they, they started reasoning with the Thessalonian people In order to persuade them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. It was because of their faithfulness to the gospel that they suffered severely and they were publicly shamed and humiliated. And yet, what was the response? To keep on going. Paul's argument here is this, guys, when we came to you from Philippi, you know we did not give up preaching. We did not choose to stay silent. We did not take a sabbatical. We kept on preaching the gospel for your sake. You know that. Brothers and sisters, that is a key hallmark of a faithful gospel ministry. Remaining faithful to God and his gospel in the face of great opposition. when we're committed to the gospel, we will not let circumstances, no matter how difficult they are, deter us from our gospel mission. Right? You know, in 21st century Western world, it feels like the temperature is getting turned up with regards to the hostility and antipathy that is coming towards Christian, Bible-believing evangelical Christian, and you know it's easy in such a sin to cave under the pressure. It's easy. Not to remain fully committed to our God and to his gospel. You know that, right? So in your workplace, when, when, when an opportunity comes up for the gospel, how easy it is to remain silent and not speak. Why? Fear of suffering. Fear of slander. Fear of being thought as weird and ridiculed. Now, now, now think about it from Paul and Silas's point of view they'd just suffered severely they'd just been shamed publicly I think the temptation would be to just give up for a little while not to want to go through all of that again right but that's not what they did Now, unless you get the wrong impression, one of the impressions we can sometimes give when we're talking about the apostles is we turn them into superheroes, superhumans. Not so. You know, Paul said when he was writing to the church at Corinth, when I came among you, I came in weakness in fear and much trembling. He was not confident in himself or in his own abilities. He was frightened, he was fearful, he was weak, he was trembling. In Ephesians, at the very end of it, in verses 19, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul asks Ephesian Christians, please will you pray that when I speak the gospel, I would speak it with boldness. Why? Because he knew the reality of feeling fear when it came to the proclamation of the gospel. So notice what Paul says in verse 2. We had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul and Silas were ordinary men like you and me. But their confidence was not in themselves. It was firmly rooted and grounded in their God. Their boldness was in God. Brothers and sisters, that is what we're going to need if we're going to be a church that goes on with a faithful ministry of the gospel. A confidence in God. Not a confidence in ourself. A commitment to God and his gospel message. Knowing that it is the power of God unto salvation for all who would come to believe. You know, when I, I started ministry here in, in LCPC, here's a, here's an honest insight. There was times I came trembling, anxious, worried about my sermon, how it would be heard, how it would become a cross Our beloved associate pastor, in that room there, would take the time just maybe with a sentence to remind me that my confidence ought not to be in myself or in my sermon my confidence needed to be in god and in his message and in the power of his spirit First hallmark of a faithful gospel ministry is remaining utterly confident in God and his gospel message no matter the opposition or the conflict or the fears or the anxieties. Okay, second hallmark of a faithful gospel ministry is possessing God-honoring morals. You see, the second accusation that seems that the jealous Jews lobbied at Paul and his companions, regarding Paul and his companions, was this. See, those men, when they came among you in Thessalonica, they were just in it for themselves. Those men were just fly-by-the-night preachers, peddling a false religion to try and get power, influence, and even sexual favors. Look at verse 3. For our pill does not spring from error or impurity, or any attempt to deceive, you, you might not know this, but in the first century, it was very common for uh, there to be itinerant speakers, philosophers, uh, rhetoricians who would come into various cities and towns, and they would they would they would give a very sophisticated message, often filled with error, in an attempt to deceive, to have power and influence over people, so that they could get from them what they wanted. And that often, at times, involved sex. Or money. Now now just remember this about the church. In Thessalonica. Who was it made up of? Jews. Who were persuaded. Greeks. And loads of leading women. So how easy was it for this accusation to stick? Paul and Silas. They came among you. And their motives born in error, impurity Leon Morris says the Greek word there implies sexual impurity attempts to deceive these jealous Jews were insinuating that Paul and his companions were imposters but notice what Paul says in verse 5 for we never came with words of flattery as you know in other words we didn't come like these sophisticated speakers these philosophers philosophers and, and nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. And this is really fascinating. By all the things that Paul says that they did not do, he's implying this is what's been, this is what's been said about them. And so he sets up the stark contrast between what are sinful, selfish morals with what are God. Honouring God-centred morals. Now, now look at the list of sinful, selfish morals. Error, impurity, deception, flattery, greed. Verse six, seeking glory from people. Question. Are there people in the 21st century that use Christianity as a pretense for sinful and selfish motives? Answer? Yes. Who? I know, the wealth, health and prosperity preachers. Don't they? They use the gospel as a pretense to build up multi-million dollar ministries, pay for their mansions and live their lavish lifestyles, all the while fleecing their flock and taking advantage of the poor? Yes but they're the easy target let's not be fooled it's not just the wealth, health and prosperity preachers who have sinful selfish motivations in ministry if the last few years in reformed evangelicalism has taught us anything it is that sinful selfish motivations can be found in our tribe whether it's in conservative, English, Anglicanism, whether it's in Free Church of Scotland, whether it's in leading evangelist, apologist ministries in America, megachurch contexts. How many men have recently been exposed as imposters or shams? Now, we can think of them, but I don't think that's where this lands. Let me ask you the soul-searching, heart-searching question I had to ask myself this week. Do I ever have sinful, selfish morals as I go about my Christian life and calling? Let me ask you that question. Do you ever go about your Christian life and calling with sinful selfish motives? Let me take one from which Paul mentions. If most of us are going to be honest with ourselves the answer is yes. He mentions one of them. One of our biggest problems for most of us in this room I suspect is we are people pleasers. We would rather please man than please God. And that motivation can shape our lives and even our callings. We live for the praise and approval of others. That's what makes our day. If that person we're trying to get to notice us actually notices us and gives us praise. There's so many of us, right? Even even us involved in Christian ministry who at our very heart we want to please men. We want to please women. Even in even in preaching. Even in our posturing when we're having pastoral conversations. And so do you. In your Christian life. You'll do things to please people. And you'll not give a thought to, does this please God? You know, at the heart of people pleasing, the problem at the heart of people pleasing is people please or strive to please everyone because at the root of it, they really want to please themselves. Now here's a stark, right? This is, this, this is the, this is the convict, the thing that really got me convicted this week in the study I thought about this passage is, Paul says when he came among the church in Thessalonica he did not come to please man. Look at what he says. Verse 4. Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel so we speak not to please man but to please God who tests our heart. Look at verse 6. Nor did we seek Glory from people. Whether from you or from others. That's so striking because. That's that's a hard reality to live out. Living a gospel ministry. Where you can honestly say. I ain't trying to please man. I'm only trying to please God and my only desire is his glory and not glory from other people but you know the reason why Paul could say this is because he'd come to discover the freedom the gospel brings if you want to break this vice of people pleasing Rather than trying to please a hundred voices, you need to learn there is only one voice you need to listen to and there's only one you need to seek to please. And it's God. And what did Paul and Silas do so that they could say that we live to please God and not man? Well, this, they lived their lives with a constant consciousness of God's judgment of them. God's opinion of them. Look look at what Paul says. He says, I know that we are approved by God. He says, I know we've been entrusted with the gospel. He says, I know that God tests my heart. God knew him better than he knew himself and he knew that at his core he could rest in the knowledge because of God's opinion of him. He's approved him, he's entrusted him with the gospel, that therefore he could live for God's pleasure and pleasure alone. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need to come to learn. We need to come to know God's settled opinion and judgment of us. Do you know it? Do you know what God thinks about you if you are in Christ? Do you know what God's judgment is of you if you are in Christ, being filled with the Spirit, bought with the blood of Jesus? God loves you. God has united you to himself in his Son. He's redeemed you. He is restoring you. He is remaking you and conforming you to the image of his son. God doesn't just like you. God doesn't just tolerate you. God loves you. And by the way, when, when this truth, right, masters your mind and your heart, when you know God's settled opinion of yourself, it gives you the freedom to live for him. That's what the gospel reveals to us. God's amazing love for us demonstrated in the death of his one and only son. I would posit that most of our problems in life are why we want to please other people, why we want to get other people to like us. It's because we've never let the truth sink down deep into our souls. that we're loved by God. And in his son, he is pleased with us. So one night I preached a sermon right in this church one evening and I thought it was a train wreck. And I, after the benediction, you know, I came down and I was sheepishly standing around. And our beloved associate pastor took me aside, took me over there. You know he said to me? Andy, you need to believe the truth that you preach. You're an adopted son of God and he loves you. One moment, I discovered, man, what is my problem? I keep on forgetting that even though I preach it. We've got a spiritual amnesia that that, that haunts us daily and it means that we forget who we are. We are people who are loved by God and because we're loved by God, we can now live to please Him and enjoy Him. We don't need to live our lives for the opinions and the judgments of other people. We've got the opinion of God settled over our lives. And so with Paul, who wrote in Corinthians, so we make it our home to please him. Because we know, we're convinced of his love for us. You'll find freedom from people pleasing when you come to discover that you're ple- that God is pleased with you in Christ, the second hallmark of a faithful gospel ministry is possessing God honouring motives, and the way that you possess them, living for the praise of God, the glory of God, and not for the praise of man or to please man is by knowing who you are in Christ. You know, Harrison, I'm going to miss you for all the times you've encouraged me and reminded me of what we're about in gospel ministry. And here's my humble request of you, LCPC remind and encourage me and one another with these truths and harrison we will be praying and we will seek to remind and encourage you as you go on to exercise a gospel ministry far from us of the very truths you delighted to remind us of let's pray God, your gospel is incredible. Because you're the God who searches our hearts, who knows us better than we know ourselves. We would be fools to ever pretend or lie in your presence. And so we come before you and we honestly confess, God, that there are so many times where we find ourselves fearful and anxious about going on with gospel ministry in a context where we will face opposition or rejection or silent treatment and yet God we've been reminded tonight in your word that our boldness ought to be in you our confidence in you and in your message impress and imprint this upon our hearts and minds and souls God, we, we confess that so often the selfish, sinful motives that are often creep into our lives are us living for the praise of men and us living to please others, not you. Forgive us and have mercy upon us. But God, thank you tonight for reminding us that in the gospel, You love us. You are pleased with us. And so help us by your spirit as we seek to make it our only ambition to live for your praise and your glory. Lord, we pray as you help us think about a faithful gospel ministry, that you would help us live that out as a church family. And that that would shape and mark the lives of all of our church leaders. We thank you for the way it's been embodied and exhibited to us in Harrison. We pray, O God, that those truths and convictions would live in him and bear much fruit as he rests in you. We pray this in your son's precious and powerful name. Amen.